you realize you're essentially asking us what color are the seat belts on your servers. They don't have them. Their color wouldn't matter. You never actually wanted to be doing that. You're just accustomed to the notion that you have to do that. And I'm here to bring to your attention the idea that what you're asking for would be like putting a clutch pedal in a car with an automatic transmission. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in this week. Very appropriate follow-up to last week's episode on the, the ethics of big data. I got the chance to speak with Peter Coffey, who is the Vice President of Strategic Research at Salesforce.com. Peter was visiting the University of Montana recently to speak in one of our classes, a management information systems class. And Peter's been a huge supporter and advocate of the way we are creating classroom experiences, classroom and beyond experiences for our students here at the University of Montana College of Business. We thank him for that. And we thank him for stopping by the podcast. Peter is a futurist. He is paid to think about what's next in technology, what's coming that we should be concerned about, what's coming that should excite us, and what's coming that we should maybe be scared of that we're not, or, or maybe what we're scared of that we shouldn't be. And we talk about all that in today's episode. He is going super fast, operating in a plane several layers above me, and I'm just trying to hang on for the ride. So it was a fun, exciting, invigorating conversation, and I look forward to bringing it to you right now. So we're here today with Peter Coffey. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be with you, Justin. So your title at Salesforce is uh, Vice President of Strategic Research. Is that correct? Right. Right. It sounds like a very big job. I was hired 12 years ago with the title of Head of Platform Research Mm -hmm. at a time when we had barely begun to discuss the idea with our customers of what if we could sell you the CRM without the CRM? as if people had suddenly discovered you could buy Microsoft Windows without Office on top and sure. do anything else you wanted. Because I'd had a conversation with our CEO and co-founder, Mark Benioff, three years earlier about that idea. And over a two-hour breakfast, we had kind of laid out on the proverbial placement the things that a platform as a service should do for you. Sure. It shouldn't take all of the skills, requirements, and complexities and delays of traditional application development transplant those to the internet and call that a victory. That would not be my idea Mm -hmm. of a win. I had some specific thoughts that things like security should become platform services instead of being complex and fragile developer obligations. And so three years later, I got a call saying, okay, we think we're ready to go to market with this. Would you kindly get yourself over here (laughs) and take a new job that we're creating called head of platform research? It, was originally the thought that we had a well-established business of selling a customer relationship management tool delivered as a subscription service to people who were salespeople. Sure. Can we just pause and educate the listener on what exactly a CRM is and why it's important? I just want to make sure because all of us very happy to discuss that. Yeah. For a long time, there was a category of business software called Salesforce Automation, Mm -hmm. which consisted of going beyond a simple Rolodex contact list right. to something that started to put more of an active process structure around that, like the process of identifying a lead, qualifying that lead to establish intent to buy and relevance of product. At that point, you have something called an opportunity. Mm-hmm. 
and then opportunities become deals. And the notion of a sort of funnel with lots of leads turning into a smaller number of opportunities, turning into a smaller number of deals, is sometimes called the sales pipeline yep. or the sales funnel. And then moving from Salesforce automation to customer relationship management is the next logical step where instead of a one-way flow through your funnel, you start to have more of an opportunity for continuing conversation with customers because the customer who's bought one thing is your most likely prospect right. for more things. Mm -hmm. And turning it from a transactional flow into an ever-expanding, one hopes, footprint of, of upsell and, and, and product line expansion is where you become a customer relationship management sure. product and not just a Salesforce automation product. The paradox is that when we started the company, Salesforce automation was perceived by salespeople as a micromanagement right. tool for intrusive sales managers. Just a way to measure their performance at every step exactly. of the way. Exactly, right. and to have almost coercive and abusive incentive relationships, sure. you know, epitomized by the famous style uh, monologue of Alec Baldwin in Glen, the Glen, movie Glengarry mm -hmm. Glen Ross, where they come and say, you know, new sales contest, first prize Cadillac, second prize steak knives, uh, third, third prize you're fired. Exactly. And that was not a relationship that we wanted to be part of. So in some ways, the most important accomplishment of the first 10 years of Salesforce was rehabilitating the image mm -hmm of CRM from coercive tool, log in on Friday to update your call sheet so you can get paid, into performance improvement tool, log in on Monday, because that's where you'll find guidance and collaboration with colleagues and exchange of best practices, introducing tools like Sales Genius, which recognized similarities of deals, recognized similarities of competitive challenges in a deal, to recommend tactics that have been successful in the past or to warn against sure. tactics that have not worked. That was really the first 10 years. And then I came to work there. Mm -hmm. And we thought initially we'd sell CRM to salespeople and we'd sell this new thing called platform to traditional application developers and IT departments. Within three months, we'd realized that we were 90 degrees off. It wasn't that there was a applications business on one side of the house and a platform business on the other, the platform became the ultimate feature okay. of the CRM because anywhere that you found a boundary in our preconceived idea of what CRM should be, well, open the, open the door and the floor and there's all the platform stuff that we use to build it. Okay. You need a new object that represents the wealth management client, for example, go for it. And financial software providers realized they could start with what we had, rapidly build distinctive concepts, concepts of what a customer is on that foundation and be in the market immediately with a highly scalable subscription software-as-a-service product. Right. So, right. for example... And this was, like, at the forefront of the whole software-as-a-service movement. I mean, we you guys pretty were much, pioneers. We, yeah, we really did. Yeah. We really did. Um, people were selling compute capacity as a service and calling right. it utility computing. That was IBM's phrase. We called it on-demand initially. The phrase cloud computing emerged around 2007, but it was driven by the market, not by the vendors. And then what we found is that, for example, very early on, a UK financial services company called Coda wanted to bring its proven 
prowess and intellectual property in developing a business financials package into a subscription model because customers are saying, could we buy this thing as an internet subscription sure. model? And they looked at their own internal analysis of that and said, we could build and provision a subscription infrastructure and management package, or we could try this this new thing from Salesforce. It doesn't even have a name yet, but it's they're, they're sort of calling it platform. Sure. They estimate that they saved eight months and $50 million by building on a nascent platform product. So they were one of the first existing software companies to look at the new model and say, rather than develop a whole new set of skills and infrastructure to deliver on that model, let's begin at a higher level by building on a platform as a service. Okay. And so that combination of take the CRM and extend it or take an existing software intellectual property base and deliver it in this new form, that really became kind of the, the intersection of my job. But then very quickly, instead of platform research being a new area for us, platform became a product. And yeah, that was it. Yeah. So the title head of platform research made people think I worked for that product unit. So we changed my title to VP of strategic research with the intent of broadening my umbrella. And there's really no piece of Salesforce with which I don't have some kind of dotted line relationship. Mm -hmm. I go out into the world, instead of being left side, right side, apps and platform, it's now inside, outside. Okay. We have internal competitive intelligence teams that support our own salespeople. And I and the small cadre of people who work for me formally, and a much larger cadre of people who affiliate with me, we spend our time out in the world and I tell people our job is to take what we discuss, take what we hear, put it into three buckets and bring it back to San Francisco. Bucket one. This is stuff we did that they didn't know we did. Huge, mm -hmm. continuing challenge for us. The stock ticker symbol is CRM. The first syllable of the product name right. is sales. Right. The tallest office building west of the Mississippi River is Salesforce Tower. And many people still think we're a CRM company with some accessories. Mm -hmm. The fact that more than half the work done by our back-end systems supports things we don't write, that we are by majority of our activity a platform provider, is still news to many people. So bucket one, here's stuff they didn't know we were doing. Marketing, get to work. Mm -hmm. Here's stuff that they wish we did that we aren't doing. And we should think about that. Sure. We could develop it. We could acquire it. We've made a lot of acquisitions over the last few years. And either of those options or is Or maybe it's pursuing. a pass. Somebody else do that. Yeah, exactly. It's not in our we way. Right. Or, or we partner with it. Right. right. Build it. Acquire it. Partner with it. Mm -hmm. Fine. And in many cases, we wind up going to market and you know, co-marketing. Or third category. They think they still want this. Mm. In a new environment... They're not going to need it. They, they don't. Not only do they not need it, they shouldn't be wasting time on okay. it. Okay. And so I had conversations early on where people were saying, well, how do you do X, Y, and Z? And I said, at the time, this would be going on 10, 12 years ago, you realize you're essentially asking us, what color are the seat belts on your servers? They don't have them. Mm -hmm. Their color wouldn't matter. You never actually wanted to be doing that. You're just accustomed to the notion that you have to do that. Right. And I'm here to bring to your attention the idea that what you're asking for would be like putting a clutch pedal in a car with an automatic transmission. 
you're used to it being there, but it no longer has any useful purpose. Yeah. And that's where I really earn my job is helping people to see a world that has changed in really fundamental ways. Remember, when I started with the company in 07, the iPhone had not yet been introduced. Right. And when the iPhone was introduced, I had to look this up the other day because I could barely believe it. The first iPhone wasn't even a 3G device. No, not even. The iPhone yeah. 3G came a year later. Yeah, and that was a really big deal. It was. It was a doubling of bandwidth, a mere doubling, because now, of course, we're several orders of magnitude greater than that. Mm-hmm. And with 5G, which is going to come upon us quite quickly, literally within the next two years, you'll be seeing tens of gigabit per second bandwidth. And that kind of tr- genuinely exponential, I'm not using the word in the loose sense of really, really fast, but literally a hockey stick continuous acceleration curve of exponential growth of connectivity alone mm-hmm. creates both opportunity and expectation on the part of customers. So at this point, the, the majority of my job is getting people to stop thinking linearly about progress and incrementally about innovation and start to understand the imperatives of dramatic acceleration of the rate of change and transformational innovation of redefining what is your product and not just improving the product you sell. Let me give you my favorite example of that. You know what a taser is. Mm-hmm. Non-lethal device used to you know, take down a suspect without killing anybody. Yeah. That brand's got a certain amount of baggage. There's the famous video of the incident with the guy you know, squirming on the floor, screaming, don't tase me, bro. Yeah. The phrase... Don't Tase Me Bro is a registered trademark appearing on T-shirts sold to people who believe at this point perversely that tasers are a symbol of excessive use of force. Okay. Try to remember, it used to be people wound up with broken heads or worse. And now the taser, okay, well, is there some baggage on the brand? Most people outside of the public safety or criminal justice systems do not know this. Taser is now a sub-brand of a parent company that sells a complete solution where if I draw my taser out of the holster, the body cam begins to record the incident. Okay. At the end of the incident, I holster my device, and 30 seconds later, the video and all the associated metadata of when the device was used, at what location, how many times it was discharged, over what period of time, this is now automatically and without error or bias or distortion of the event, correctly logged and reported, it's on the desk of the precinct captain before I get back to the office. It's on the desk of the associate district attorney. When the defendant's attorney comes in screaming about excessive force, they can hand him the report and say, here's the complete it's incident right report. You sure you want to pursue this complaint? Mm-hmm. And, ta- and Taser's parent company, Axon, is now able to s- say to people, we can double or triple the amount of time that your officers are actually on the street engaging with the public because now they're not spending their time filling in reports, testifying in court, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the product is no longer the object. Mm -hmm. The product is the outcome. The outcome is productivity. And incidentally, instead of selling the product and then not hearing from you for months or years, they're part of your everyday process of delivering public safety and criminal justice. You have a recurring revenue instead of an intermittent revenue stream. You have an intimate relationship with the customer that goes on every day instead of the occasional transactional relationship of merely selling a product and being constantly in competition on features, functions, price. 
You're part of their lives now. And that is one of the most remarkable examples I can offer of a company that had the boldness and vision to redefine what they do in terms of a service supported by products instead of products maintained by services. Most companies still think of service as a post-sale cost to be right, minimized. Right. Follow-up, upsell sort of thing. Well, or, or, a, or a customer complaint resolution. Right, right. And so traditionally service departments are evaluated on minimizing average handle time for calls because yeah. time spent on the phone with the customer when the customer's not buying anything right. is traditionally seen as a pure cost. Yeah, I had a buddy who worked in a call center, college, and every fourth call he just hung up. That was part of his metrics, was time to resolution. So he figured if I hang up every fourth call, that'll bring my average down. Well, Harold Janine at ITT used to say very seriously to people, what's measured is what matters. But yeah. I have, I have uh, coffee's uh, corollary to that, which is what's rewarded is what's repeated. And yeah. if what's rewarded is minimum time on the phone, you're going to get minimum time on the phone. Yes. If you're not measuring the ability of service departments to generate new revenue and profit... They're not going to do the things that generate new revenue and profit. Mm -hmm. But this is an odd idea. We have decades of experience in taking an existing business activity, automating it, recording it, calling that IT. It leads to silos. Silos were a natural outcome of two things. One, most of the data that mattered was a byproduct of your own activity, and connectivity was intermittent and expensive. Okay. When most of the data that really is interesting now originates outside your walls as behavior of your customers and your partners and your competitors, and when connectivity is bordering on free and universal, mm -hmm. it only makes sense that we should ask ourselves, do we want a better version of the thing we built before, or should we try to try hard, and this is a phrase that our uh, CEO, Mark Benioff, uses fairly often, to look with the eye of the child and imagine that we don't know how this is done and say, how would we do this if we started de novo in a world of massive connectivity, abundant computation, an expectation of 24-7 mobile access to services and information, and try as quickly as we can to build that instead of trying to do a better, faster, cheaper version of what we have now, which unfortunately is the path of least resistance for most technology efforts. And so as you kind of approach your work, are you thinking about making prediction or are you oh, thinking... Oh, all the time. Yeah, all so the time. how do you conceptualize the, the, the business of prediction? Absolutely. Really wonderful question. George Friedman, not the better known Tom Friedman who wrote World is Flat, George right. Friedman, wrote a book that surprisingly did quite well. I think it was a New York Times bestseller for quite some time called The Next 100 Years. Okay. It takes real guts to make 100-year predictions. He also yeah. had another very well-received book called The Next Decade. But the opening pages of the next 100 years really changed my thinking when he said, if you're talking about demographics and geography, you're really not making predictions. Demographics, if I know how many 10-year-olds a country has today, i got a pretty good handle on right. how many 20-year-olds they're going to have in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Pretty good. It's really – I tell people this isn't prediction. This is taking an equation and solving it for a future value of time. These are, these are bordering on certainties. And so there are statements you can make about what's going to happen. 
when you frame them in terms of demographics and geography. For example, are people going to live longer? Yeah. Japan is heading toward 84 people over 65 for every 100 between, 100, between 15 and 65, mm-hmm. what they call the old age dependency ratio. 0.84 in Japan, 0.7-ish in South Korea, wow. 0.6 and above in Central Europe. The U.S. would be much higher if it weren't for immigration. Right. The only thing that's keeping the U.S. economy from turning into Japan's is that we just have a much more open attitude toward the uh, incorporation of new resources. Once you realize that that's a certainty, we can't scale up the existing healthcare system to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Not going to work. We have to look at things like devices that you wear, devices that are in your home. For a tiny amount of money, I can put a pH analyzer on your toilet. Instead of you coming to the doctor's office every month for an expensive test, measuring all the time, we can just yeah. say, hey, look, mm-hmm. if your pH is, hasn't changed, then you're probably not having any big changes. Right. So now we can have a, an escalating system in which simple results are obtained cheaply and conveniently, and the expensive stuff is only done when needed. Mm-hmm. Now, this is going to drive demand for a whole new class of medical devices. Right. But it goes beyond that. People are going to be working older. Autonomous vehicles aren't a technology stunt. If you want people in their 80s and 90s to be commuting to work, they'd better not need to drive. Yeah. You know, at some point, I'm sorry, I'm going to be 80 pretty soon. Well, not really soon. I expect to be 80 or 90, and I don't have any realistic likelihood that my reflexes are going to be what they were, and I shouldn't be manually driving a car. Elon Musk has said that in the very near future, Driving a car is going to be like riding a horse. It's going to be something you do for the fun of it, not because it's the most practical way to get around. Right, right. So certain technologies, you realize, are going to be necessary to meet a certain requirement of an aging population. It's that straightforward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing with geography. The U.S. is a two-ocean superpower. It's the only two-ocean superpower on the planet. And if you go back and look, this is, again, George Friedman's analysis, at the role of things like, you know, the Navy, the difference between Democrat and Republican is absolutely insignificant once you address the requirements of needing to have access to both the major oceans to maintain your trade routes. Sure. Basic ideas. So when people ask me, how do I do prediction, I actually have an acronym for it. Um, Begin with facts. If you begin with immediate present facts, then no one can say you're just making this up. So facts like old age dependency ratio, for example. Observations, where out of the facts you extract things that are actually interesting. Okay, Okay. there's some judgment call to be made there. Consequences, run the math on your observations. Mm -hmm. Actions, because if you're not talking about actions, then why are you talking about it at all? And then finally, what are the long-term things that could happen that would really change all of your assumptions. Uh, a major breakthrough, for example, in the ability to factor the products of large prime numbers would require us to completely rebuild cryptography infrastructure. Sure. Could it happen tomorrow? Could it happen in 10 years? Could it not happen for 100 years? Yeah. Well, at that point, you really do have to have multiple scenarios. This is a phrase that Peter Schwartz, the other Peter at Salesforce, used He developed this technique at Shell Oil. Scenario planning. You don't make specific predictions, but you do discuss multiple possible scenarios. Mm -hmm. Now, oddly enough, this this, uh, sequence of start with the facts, filter to the observations, think about the consequences, 
identify the relevant actions, and then consider the long-term uncertainties. It gives you FOCAL, which is why I call it the focal method. And it's how I ask people, you know, are you doing these things? If you're not beginning with facts, you're, gonna, you're just going to have arguments. If you're not filtering the facts down to observations, you're really not applying any judgment or insight. If you aren't talking about consequences and actions, then you're really not being very action-oriented. You're just doing a, a TV show about the amazing future. Sure. And if you're not thinking about the long-term major existential variables, well, then you can wind up being very badly surprised. So thinking about those major external existential variables, sure. you, know, you, you, you sort of see the, or at least I, I hear and see some of the thought around artificial intelligence sort of dividing into two camps. Like this is just something that's happening and at any point we can unplug it and then down the other side, Elon Musk and others are saying this is a major threat to hu potentially humanity, and we need to be proactive in thinking about how to harness it in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right they're both verb. Wrong. They're okay. both. They're okay, both. Okay, wrong. So that's my question: is yeah, how, well, how do you they're, think they're, about this? Both of those extremes are. As extremes are, usually are, are the truth are is in the middle, flawed, yeah. right? If you go back and look at the first 1955 memo that came out of Dartmouth conference with um, Minsky and McCarthy and a few of the others, there were things that they identified and with enormous hubris said that they thought 10 people working for two months over a summer could make major progress on those efforts. And they talked about a lot of things. They said, you know, we've already got the computational capacity to do this. We just need to learn how to express it in software. They were wrong by many orders of magnitude. The, com the compute capacity we had back then wasn't remotely adequate to the task. They thought that the hard part was thinking and that logic and inference and deduction and uh, predicate logic and so on were going to be the hard parts. Within 10 or 20 years, you can find them saying, wow, this turns out to be really hard because they had grossly underestimated the importance and the difficulty of what's now typically called in the field common sense reasoning. Okay. And, you know, thought experiment, famous thought experiment, you give a robot the challenge of finding and its, its reserve power pack and getting it out of a room before a bomb in the room goes off, before a time bomb in the room explodes and destroys that power pack. It's a very simple problem. And in the first generation of this hypothetical thought experiment, the robot does successfully find its battery and pulls it on a wagon out of the room, at which point the bomb, which was also on the wagon, oh, the wagon. blows up, okay. and, and the problem is, in fact, not solved. So, first challenge, how do you get the machine to understand relationships that matter? Uh -huh. Second generation, the machine goes, does go into the room, finds the bomb. And then sits there. And they go and run a diagnostic on the machine and eventually figure out the problem was the machine was thinking, okay, uh, d does the color of the room matter? Does the, hmm. you know, does the shape of the doorknob matter? And it's being completely overwhelmed by irrelevant stuff because yep. you taught it to look for relationships. And now it's being completely overwhelmed by relationships that do not matter. And they say, okay, we need to teach it to ignore what's irrelevant third generation. It goes in and again seems to be doing nothing. And they run the diagnostics and says, oh yeah, I found you know, 150,000 relationships that don't matter and as soon as I'm sure that I've gotten them all out of the way, I'll be able to continue. We seem to do in our heads amazing acts mm -hmm. of filtering out what 
doesn't matter at any moment. If you had to think consciously about everything you know and whether or not it would have some impact on what you're trying to do, you would be not be able to get anything done. Yeah. We don't know how to represent algorithmically or in the form of code the ability to know what doesn't matter sure. in such an efficient way that you aren't even conscious of choosing not to think about it. Mm -hmm. We don't know. And so the idea that we're going to build a machine that demonstrates human-level competence in generalized tasks and unpredictable environments is still... Roger Schenck at Yale once said, this is a 20-year research problem, but it was a 20-year research problem 20 years ago, and it's still going to be a 20-year research problem 20 years from now for all we can tell. Yeah, and, and it seems like when people kind of conceptualize AI, it's very much in the, you know, as far as what's coming, it's very much in sort of human form. And that seems like... They tend to associate a, AI misguided. with humanoid robots. Yeah, and exactly. And too. so AI is all around us in our refrigerator. And that's the other reason it's... why the two extremes are both wrong. Because yeah. the one, that it's going to become us only better and faster, and therefore we're going to be screwed. Right. No, it's not. It's just not. It's not going to be able to out with us because it doesn't have wits. It doesn't have judgment. It doesn't have any feel for a situation. It just does not have that. But the idea that we can just unplug it, we may already be past that. Now, here's the observation that was made back in the 1980s. What's wrong with the phrase AI is that as soon as something works, we realize, oh, that didn't really need intelligence after all. Oh, Early on in yeah. the research, if you go back and look, they'll say, so they would be asked, well, how will you know when we've got an intelligent machine? And they would say things like, well, if it can play chess, that's going to be intelligent. It turns out that being able to play chess isn't intelligence. It's just chess playing skills. Sure. And the good chess playing software is not in any sense generally intelligent. It's very, very good at playing chess, and that's the only thing it's able to do. And as soon as it does something useful, we just call it what it does. For example, if I said, I'm working on a research project for machine vision that's independent of the orientation or the distance of the object. It can still identify precise characteristics and give you accurate discrimination between two objects that are almost identical to a human eye. Uh, does that sound like an interesting research program? Sure. And then someone says, so you're talking about a UPC barcode scanner like the one I have at the supermarket. Right, right. Notice that as soon as it does something useful like barcode scanning, we don't call it machine vision anymore. We mm -hmm. call it a barcode scanner. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for many, many things that we used to call AI. And as soon as we have them, we just call them what they do. And the idea that we could unplug them, well, you know, you want to try to function in a world without GPS? Yeah. You want to try to function in a world without uh, automatic uh, telephone dialing and call routing? Remember, we used to have human operators making those decisions. It wasn't scalable. Trying to go back to a world where people have to do a lot of things that today are adaptive algorithms, making pattern-based analyses and recommendations. I mean, the, the Internet works because of a tremendous amount of heuristic application of patterns of traffic that would have been considered an AI problem 30 years ago. Sure, yeah. And today we, we're completely unconscious of that. And at any given point saying, well, we'll always be able to unplug it. Try to go back to a world without automatic transmissions and watch what happens. Try to pick up your spouse at the airport without a cell phone. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. 
Okay, special announcement coming up on March 8th is the 30th annual John Raffato Business Startup Challenge. This competition, hosted by the Blackstone Launchpad and the College of Business at the University of Montana, will feature 12 elite student teams pitching new and exciting business ideas to a panel of 50 hand-picked judges in a crowd made up of over 300 business professionals and Montana community members. Teams compete for up to $50,000 in awards while having the opportunity to network with venture capitalists, early-stage investors, investment bankers, economic developers, corporate executives, and successful entrepreneurs. Come be inspired by the new generation of Montana entrepreneurs. Tickets are $15 and available online through the John Raffato Business Startup Challenge website. We'll post a link to that website in the show notes. Check out this event. It's my favorite of the year. I'm Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. It's nearly yeah. impossible. And the degree to which the, the, the crisp boundary between, well, that's just a machine and that's intelligence, yeah. I'm sorry, that turns out really not to be a crisp boundary at all. So people say we'll always be able to unplug it. They're wrong. We're building dependency on the assumption of a high degree of process intelligence into our everyday lives already. Right. But the idea that that dependency is going to turn into enslavement to the machine, mm-hmm. I think, is, is grossly exaggerated. Okay. Okay. So as always, the truth is in the middle somewhere. Yeah. It's going to be now, – now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a profound ethical choice to be made. Certainly. Because Douglas Engelbart back in 1962 said, if only we had not called it artificial intelligence, if only we had called it augmentation of intellect, mm. also an AI. Yeah. But immediately the emphasis would have been on how does this reinforce and extend what people do? And the question I ask to our prospects and customers about our own Einstein initiatives, we – pay the Einstein estate for the right to use his name and image, by the way. We call it Einstein because it's one of the most positive brands in the world. Yeah. No one has a negative image of what that means. They, they get the idea. Einstein's about being able to look at things that you've never looked at before and see them in a different way. That's what it's really all about. Is it machine learning? Is it prediction? Is it recommendations? Yes, but the de- that, that, those are details. What matters is the business outcome. And I will ask someone, I, don't, I will say to someone, I don't want to replace your people. But if I could give 60 or 70% of your people the attention to detail, immediacy of recognition of an unusual situation, ability to make the best possible recommendation consistently, and to learn continually from experience, if I give 70% of your people that level of ability which only maybe your top 10% have today, would that be worth something to you? And the answer is, well, of course it would. Absolutely. And over time, this is about making people more valuable by giving them extensions of the things they are doing. Steve Jobs famously observed that if you look at the most efficient locomotion on the planet, you know, a cheetah running is a beautiful thing. Uh, An albatross soaring you know, mm-hmm. floating on the wind currents with no apparent exertion at all is an amazing thing. But a human being on a bicycle turns out to be the most efficient creature on the planet. A very simple machine yep. extending human power. And if you look at something like a Tour de France race, you think, yeah, you want to build a robot that can try to do that? I don't think so. Yeah, good luck. Did, did you imagine the, the acts of thinking, planning, reacting, responding to a chaotic situation 
you want to look at you know, where we're going with AI. Right. We're building better bicycles for the mind, to use Steve Jobs' famous phrase. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you realize this is about building, in effect, exoskeletons for the brain, the way the exoskeleton that uh, that um, uh, Ripley is using in the second Aliens movie right. is an exoskeleton for the body mm -hmm. that extend our strength while incorporating our judgment and insight. This is exactly what Doug Engelbart was talking about in 1962. But now we finally have the computational capacity, the network bandwidth, the miniaturized technology that we're on our bodies that's aware of where we are and what we're doing. These combinations triangulate yeah, the ability to get any fact ways. we'd ever need right in our hand. Yeah. Um, but this is another interesting observation, which is that we're used to building business systems with what you might call dense data. Here's a record. It's got eight fields. Seven of them are required and one is optional notes. It's very dense data. Not a lot of empty space in that. If I'm building a system like Amazon's that recommends products you might be interested in based on every product you've ever bought, well, compared to the number of products Amazon sells, the vast majority of those I have not bought. And so that matrix is going to be mostly blank spaces. Sure. That's, that's sparse data. Okay. The business systems that we have do... Don't Very inefficient jobs of managing sparse data. That's not what they're designed to do well. And so there's work going on at places like MIT to do uh, the, you know, things like the, the TACO tensor, tensor algebra compiler that can be 100 times faster than traditional dense data manipulation without needing human fine-tuning because that's a very scarce skill. This is a frontier of AI that's genuinely new because we've not needed to solve that problem before. Okay. So dealing with sparse data is a new thing. Paul Romer just shared the Economics Nobel Prize a few weeks ago. One of his observations is that the ability to reject irrelevant data is becoming a more important skill, which leads us to one of the yeah, things so that I think you want to discuss, which is what's the role of the university in meeting the, the needs of this new world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, yeah. first of all, we haven't sort of discussed why you're here, oh, um, okay. but we'll get to that. Okay. Um, but it makes me think about, gosh, my job, our job as educators, uh, yes. preparing students for what lies in their future. Um, Doing the old job better is not the right thing. Well, so there you go. We yeah, have to turn is, it inside out. Right. Because it used to be. If you took so I'm in bucket three in a way. Yes, you are. Right. Uh, well, you're also in you're also in bucket one. There are things you need that no one is giving you yet. Correct. And there are, and you're also partially in bucket three, where there are things you're accustomed to needing to do, where doing them better would be, as Peter Drucker famously said, the wrong thing done better, or the ultimate sin. Right. Yeah. The challenge used to be taking the history of what we know, distilling it into a textbook building around probably one or two books a syllabus and telling the students, you don't need to do any aggregation of what's important or any filtering of what's irrelevant because what's happening in this room is the definition of what you need to know. And if you walk out of here after four years taking these dots connected, right, you're right. a mechanical engineer. Yep. You're Memorize these facts yep. and figures, concepts. So the student was rewarded for indiscriminate acceptance and incorporation of a fixed subject matter confirmed by the passing of tests and creating a finite result, and professors were awarded for their success in achieving that outcome. Mm -hmm. Well, for heaven's sake, <laughs> when the 
amount of knowledge you might need to know is doubling and doubling and doubling again and again and again. If I weren't doing this, I'd be an astrophysicist. And every couple of years, someone puts up a satellite that in three months collects more data about some aspect of the universe than the entire human race has managed to accumulate right, up right. into that time, probably with higher quality as well. And so I know you were just in a thesis defense this morning. You know, you used to think when my son got his PhD hood at MIT, they said, now you remember the academy. You've extended the frontiers of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, so what? Until, un until, until what, tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you have to rethink what is, what does it mean to make a contribution to the extension of human knowledge? It's not going to be a piece of fact added to the top of the pile. It's going to be a new mechanism for the collection and filtration of mm. information. That's going to be the more interesting contribution to make. And this is one of the reasons that Romer just got an economics Nobel. He's saying among the characteristics of innovation today is the ability to accept the enormous contraction of the time cycles of innovation and to filter from the noise of abundant cheap, high-quality data, the signals that actually lead to opportunity, to, uh, to recognize an opportunity in a signal. What Peter Drucker famously called uh, the incongruities. Mm -hmm. He said there were you know, maybe seven consistently important sources of innovation opportunity. The three that I always focus on are incongruities, when you look at a situation through the eye of the child and say, why do we tolerate this? New knowledge, when you say, oh, Okay, the reason we did that in that way is that we didn't know any better. We didn't know how to do anything different. For example, why would we have fragile glass tubes in our equipment? Oh, well, that's because we didn't know how solid state worked. We don't build better tubes today for very many applications, a very small number of applications, which we're still doing that. And then finally, this is a really tricky one, changes of perception. So if you look at Salesforce, for example, what was the moment of incongruity? when Mark Benioff said, how come we've got this great stuff like eBay and Amazon and, and, and Google that you don't go to a class to learn how to use it? It gets better all the time and no one complains that about the changes. They're just fine with, you know, they say, okay, no, new feature. Mm -hmm. and they absorb it. And then you go to work and you're looking at green screen technology that looks 20 years old and every time someone moves a field on a screen, it's a one-week training class. That was an incongruity. And his first vision was, what if we could bring that kind of discoverability and joyful acceptance of change to the business software environment? But how do you do that? Well, the new knowledge was the idea that uh, Parker Harris, our, one of our other co-founders, uh, had, which is to rethink the whole architecture from individual, isolated compartments for each customer into one massive engine the, you know, what we call a multi-tenant system with metadata-based configurability instead of everyone mucking around in the same code layer. Everything that our customers do is defined by us as a, at a metadata layer, which means they can't hurt each other. But then, you know, that's the new knowledge. Then you have changes in perception. It took me at least four or five years out of my first, out of my 12 years that I've been with the company to get people to stop thinking. Stop thinking as a deeply wired belief that using shared systems increased their risk and to remind them again and again and again that high-profile, 
brand-destroying breaches of privacy and data security happen all the time to companies that were trying to do it themselves because they were not full-time professionals in the sure. art of managing a highly available, highly secure system. Mm-hmm. No one attacks Amazon or Google or Salesforce directly. They seek entry into the systems with social engineering techniques, treating the user as the weak link. And so Salesforce provides free services to our customers on how to educate their end users in not becoming that weak point of entry. Meanwhile, you get horrible security breaches in credit reporting agencies and entertainment companies and whatever because they are not full-time, relentless security professionals with aggressive internal red team right. tactics. We can afford to do and that. And they're kind of a walled system too, They right? are. Yeah. And we can, we can do that. We can afford to do that. We can't afford not to do it. Sure. The day that people don't think we're a trustworthy container for information would be the day that we were no longer a viable company. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's not an adjunct task. It is, we always say, you know, trust is value number one. But the enormous costs of doing that at the state-of-the-art level, we're amortizing across a six-figure number of customers. Right. And so the economics are what they are. So if you look at something like the um, State Department, loss of traffic, we were, you know, private manning, mm-hmm. you know, walked out with a Lady Gaga CD full of diplomatic messages. In a Salesforce environment, someone who was downloading 20,000 pieces of stuff on a day when they normally would look at a few dozen pieces of stuff, there would be a red light going off on someone's dashboard because this would be an abnormal activity. It would have been flagged and he would never have left the building with that data. And I, I said, I, I looked the State Department in the eye and said, if you guys had been using our systems, this would not have happened to you. You would have just checked some boxes and a state-of-the-art pattern sure. analysis would have been incorporated. Could you have done this? Yes. Did you do it? No. Why? You don't have the people. You don't have the charter. You Or the perspective, right? Yeah. Like they're, they're thinking of how do we build bigger walls around what we do. Right. And, and and interestingly, in one of the um, in one of James, uh, Ian Fleming's James Bond novels, "You Only Live Twice," there's a um, scene where he's meeting with someone in Japan who says, "In the West, you think that you keep your secrets by building thicker walls. Mm. In Japan, where we have a different architecture with wooden frames and paper walls." When we wish to have a conversation in secret, we open all the doors to be sure that no one is listening. Right. And today, I think that's a model. Everything's connected. And so rather than thinking that you can isolate yourself, which really just has the same effect as putting your money under the mattress where it's no longer able to work for you, mm-hmm. you want to have connectivity, but you want to have very disciplined, measured connectivity that notices the abnormal doesn't try to anticipate every possible attack because that's a bugs game. That's, that's playing whack-a-mole. It's, it's not an effective security approach. But to be able to recognize an abnormal behavior, an abnormal data flow, an abnormal event, and say, okay, circuit breaker, going to block that connection until yeah. I've analyzed what's happening here. You can do that. And that's the only viable approach to security today when now you don't just have individuals attacking you, you have state-level attacks mm-hmm. going on. I'm not mm-hmm. going to name any specific countries, but there are large, well-funded military and intelligence operations with geopolitical-level threats to the intellectual property that's the foundation of many countries' key industries. And it's naive 
to think that you can prevent that kind of thing with a consumer antivirus product. Absolutely. You know, this yeah. requires that level of engagement, and we provide that. So as far as, you know, the job of the university today, it's to equip people with not the textbooks in their head that used to be the product, but the lenses for their eyes that let them look at a constantly changing and expanding pool of relevant knowledge, filter out what doesn't matter, and apply with creativity and intelligence that which does. So for example, the first time that I visited the University of Montana mm -hmm. to talk about the big data program here, they impressed the heck out of me because the people waiting for me were from the schools of mathematics, computer science, business, and wait for it, visual arts. Mm -hmm. You don't often find the liberal arts wing being invited to come into the room, but they had understood that if you can't visualize the pattern, then you can't really convey the pattern. Right. And they understood that this is a holistic thing, that data is only relevant. Do you know the word data? The origin of the word data, people think it relates to something like measurement. The actual origin of the word data is a thing given. Okay. Until it has been received and understood by somebody, you can argue in a very literal way, it's not yet It doesn't exist. Data. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't exist. The tree that falls in the forest doesn't make a sound. Right. It's not data until something's received it and incorporated it and probably acted on it, because otherwise, how would you know? Yeah. And the university here understood that. Now, I was originally here to do a talk for the math colloquium. Mm -hmm. I knew a student here from past lives as uh, uh, fellow students at MIT, and she, knowing of my interest in the subject, knowing of the university's program, which was at the time a little forward-looking. I mean, you guys have been teaching big data and data science here at UMT yeah. for much longer than it's been a mainstream topic in the literature. And so it was a privilege to come here and, and do a talk on our perspective on it, but also to meet the people in your department. And it's become a regular thing. We have a major partner here in uh, uh, ATG. ATG, Cognizant. Very yeah. interesting, now part of Cognizant, mm -hmm. which has a very interesting collaborative relationship with the business school, right. the project-oriented class, which is, I have held out to many of our other partner companies, a model for how to address the talent problem. Because instead of waiting for people to graduate and then starting to give them what you wish they'd gotten in school, well, why are you waiting? Right, give Why it to them now. In the class, cooperating in the curriculum, mm -hmm. participating in the development of the talent, essentially getting people to spend tuition doing what you would otherwise have to pay them a salary while training them to learn. When you put it that way, that starts to sound pretty pragmatic, now doesn't it? Certainly to the employer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To and, the employer, and to us and as to the well. I mean, it, you get the, the, the resource. I mean, if you had to fund a bunch of graduate students to do what the ATG people are do doing, it. you'd do be, it. have to go out and find mm -hmm. a lot of new grants. So this and, is, and, and now the relevancy and the currency of the material are, are, if not absolutely assured, then they're certainly promoted. Well, and it's agile, too. Yes. I mean, we can change the content and yes. the, all well, of those I'm, pieces I'm sure, I'm all sure the that time. every time the class is taught, it reflects some new insights and some to. new elevation of expectations, yeah. and that's what you want, mm -hmm. as opposed to the agonizing process of going, oh, my gosh, we're going to adopt a new textbook for the course, which happens rarely and is a painful process of adopting something that by virtue of being between hard covers is probably already two years old. Yeah, it's already Two years dead. didn't used to be a long time. And <laughs> now it kind of is. Now, you know, now entire bodies of knowledge emerge over that kind of time period. 
gosh. So as we kind of, I can't help but uh, but try to ask you about some of the ethical questions associated with the business of prediction that sure. you're in, and, and what are the big ethical issues that you sort of think about um, and bump up against when thinking about how technology is going to change? Well, we've we actually created an office of ethical and humane use of AI okay. at Salesforce because we think it's necessary for the business community to be leading that conversation and not allow itself to become reactive to that conversation. I was originally trained as a civil engineer, which surprises people. And I did an interview with the head of our civil engineering department at MIT in which he told me that he felt that the biggest failure of the profession had been to allow lawyers rather than civil engineers to become the professional voice of environmental responsibility. Okay. Yeah. You know, we we took this attitude that, you know, we just build the things and we let the lawyers be the ones who were leading the demonstrations. And we should have said, you know, we could have we could have taken on yeah. an ethical An-agency. responsibility. We could have done that. Yeah. And I think that that's what industry wants not to do uh, in, in this case. We don't want the lawyers to be the voice of AI ethics. We think, you know, engineers can can have a role to play here. The thing that I think concerns us most at Salesforce is that you have this radical acceleration of the need for new skills and the challenge to mid-career professionals of how do they take all the things they know, which are not well captured by algorithms and code, and augment them with new tools and skills so that those insights can be applied in the new environment. Now, the numbers are kind of scary. I did a talk for our user community in India just this past weekend where I shared with them some stats. I mean, services, as opposed to traditional product industries, now represent 59% of India's gross domestic wow. product. Yeah. But only employ 27% of its labor force. Interesting. These are high productivity, high value jobs, but they don't create a lot of new jobs unless you choose to make that a priority. Now, if you build the technology in a way that replaces people from the bottom up and leave only what Robert Reich once called the symbol manipulators as having value to offer, well, you wind up with a real-life world that looks like the one in the movie Elysium where they actually had to film the opening scenes in an actual location, which is a garbage dump in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I think the first 15, 20 minutes of Elysium are a frighteningly believable depiction of what some people think is going to happen. Could be, Which is that the only good jobs left are painting robots, Mm -hmm. which then, upon activation, become the police keeping the other people in line. You know, and, and that's a scenario, to use a term that we discussed earlier. That's a scenario... That could happen if there's no thought given to making it turn out differently. Now, if we change our definition of what's a successful introduction of technology from starting at the bottom of the ladder and replacing people all the way up with starting at the middle of the ladder and augmenting people's abilities and working outward so that more and more people get brought up into that environment and people who are currently running the the system become evaluated for their skill in lifting up others instead of dismissing and dispensing with others. Andy Grove at Intel used to say to his managers, if you're not developing talent, I can't pay you the salary of a manager when all you're being is a supervisor. 
right? And adopting as a value of a corporation or any other institution the conscious mission of developing talent and growing the pool of those who are successful is a choice. It's not a particularly difficult choice. It turns out to have enormous payoffs. Companies that cultivate that shared responsibility and sense that everybody's participating at the upper levels, they wind up discovering insights at the level of, you know, the loading dock and the factory floor instead of thinking that all the good ideas come out of the brainiacs in the R&D department. And these tend to be healthier organizations with higher levels of retention, higher levels of worker productivity and satisfaction, less disengagement, less active sabotage. These turn out to be the companies that are the leaders of brands today. For example, Patagonia. One mm-hmm. of a great Salesforce customer. The Patagonia brand is not unknown to people who have to you know, wear uh, warm clothing mm-hmm. in uh, Montana. Oh, yeah. They're friends of the podcast. Okay. Patagonia is a great brand because they've consciously chosen to promote the association of their brand, not merely with the quality of the product they sell, but with the values that may be assumed to be widely shared by the people who are among their biggest buyers of those products. Absolutely. They ran a Black Friday ad in the New York Times headlined, Don't Buy This Jacket. And they talk about the amount of environmental footprint that goes into manufacturing and shipping a garment and said, and we want you to think about the quality of our product as meaning it's repairable or worth passing along to someone. And they have uh, the uh, worn... Wear. Worn yeah, worn uh, program that encourages people to bring gently used garments back where they refurbish them, and they keep people on payroll whose yeah. only job is to you know, get this stuff working. Now, that's and you send stuff back, and they'll repair it for free. Yeah. And send it back to you for free. And that's a, that's a high-level statement of value, but it's not just a plaque on the wall. It's a behavior. And it's an investment, and it's the creation of skills like repair. It's easier to make lots of things new than it is to fix them. Fixing things can be hard. But, of course, when you fix things all the time, you start to learn, hey, you know, with a slight difference in the way we construct this thing, it would be a lot easier to fix. So you end up with a very virtuous cycle here where the act of repair, if fed back into the product design process, produces more repairable stuff. So So these are the kinds of choices that we believe people need to understand. They now have the opportunity to make those choices. There are forks in the road, and corporate leaders and educators are going to decide which forks we take. Yeah. uh, I mean, what you're describing there seems like such a long-term holistic view, and I wonder how congruent... I mean, Patagonia is a private company. How congruent are these sort of long game ethics with our current market structure if that makes sense it depends on your definition that's of a, a big question you know it then. depends on your definition of a long game um yeah. i think i think at this point corporations tend to think of their talent pipeline as college seniors and up the class that we do here whether that atg and cognizant do with um the business school here targets juniors mm-hmm Research suggests that you actually need to begin thinking about this as something that happens in middle school and even in the first few years of elementary school because, uh, again, research from groups like, interestingly, the Girl Scouts 
has pointed out this paradox that all through elementary school, girls are the bookish ones, girls are the math and science ones, while the boys are still you know, blowing spitballs at each other, the girls are taking it seriously. And then something happens in middle school where the girls right. seem to fall it off flips. the wagon. And the next thing you know, you're graduating from high school and it's just assumed that the boys are going to go into engineering and the girls are going to go off and be English majors. Mm -hmm. And these are deeply wired prejudices that are built into the system. And one of the things we notice at MIT is that by the time a girl gets to the front door at MIT, she's had to jump over a lot of hurdles of people saying, oh, that's not really for girls. Yeah. And yet, once a girl gets past the freshman year at MIT, once she's a sophomore or higher, statistically, her GPA and likelihood of graduating are higher than those of the males. Mm -hmm. And we are looking in a very thoughtful way at MIT about, you know, what can we do? Not beginning at the front door, but extending all the way back into middle and even elementary school. Yeah, where's school that inflection point to in build, the social structure? To build that pipeline, right. Yeah. And our, our CEO has said to every employee, somewhere within a five-minute walk of your house, there's a school that would be happy to have you knock on the door and say, hey, is there anything I can do to help? And so in a way, it's a long game, but one of the things that my wife and I observed when we had our first child is that your definition of a long time changes because all of a sudden 20 years from now is when your newborn is going to be graduating from college, yeah. and all of a sudden 20 years from now is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. And I think if we think of this in terms of the child that's born today that will never see ice north of Canada, you yeah. know, and never I mean, need a driver's license. And, and never, never need a driver's license. Either. And again, this loops back to one of your first questions. How do you talk about prediction? I think if you anchor things in the reality of, I want you to imagine the world in which your four-year-old will graduate from college and have to seek a job. What environment do you want to have available to them for living, working, raising a family, having, having a fulfilled life? Because at that point, it stops being about some distant fuzzy idea of the future because we have very concrete ideas about what are you going to do today yeah. that's going to provide that outcome for them because it really is a matter of a lot of individual choices. And I like that framing because it's less about predicting what the world will be like and more about making claims about what you think it should be like and, and how do we... Recognizing that we all participate our goal state? in that. Yeah. The future doesn't happen to us. The future is what I do tomorrow exactly. morning that I wouldn't have done without thinking about it today. The, the, the future is not delivered to us. The future is made by us. And the remarkable thing today is that the individual with a good idea or even just a novel insight has more power to see if that can generate interest in others than ever before. I can essentially call a global press conference in 280 characters or less. And if the idea catches yeah. fire, it does. For example, when one of the world's major banks had a childcare provider in England tweet about her resentment of the amount of money she had to pay to get money out of an ATM, within 24 hours it had become a global conversation and a significant change in the bank's policies on ATM fees arguably was an outcome of that. Yeah, I wanted, you know, following after therefore caused by sure, a common yeah. logical fallacy, yeah, yeah. but I think we can say, you know, you started a conversation, you surfaced an issue. You look at something like Me Too. Yeah. It certainly wasn't a new problem, but the recognition and willingness to discuss that problem happened with startling suddenness. And I think that's part of the fact that we've got a forum now in which speaking up has an impact, has a visibility, 
that it did not have before. And instead of treating the Internet as an entertainment medium, we need to treat it as a medium of action. Something that Marcus Weldon, who's the president over at Bell Labs, said was that the Internet of today is a blip. It's supported by advertising, and its fastest use case is shopping. And the Internet that we have today, if merely given bigger bandwidth, will not do anything else. It'll just do that thing better. Mm -hmm. But I was in a factory, immersive factory simulation at Nokia Bell Labs, in which we worked with an assembly robot as a you know, human robot companion with an Internet of today's architecture controlling the robot. And it was a pretty sloppy coworker. It, it was slow in its responses and inac inaccurate in its positioning and so on. And then we pulled up some new software to find networking optimization tools, fine-tuned some of the network behaviors. The next thing you know, it's just running much, okay. much better. We need to make a conscious choice that we're going to build a global medium of measurement, notification, action, and control instead of a global medium of advertising and, sale and selling. This is a choice. Yeah. It's going to be driven by possibility. It's going to be driven by competitive necessity. But it also needs to be driven by strategic vision. And I think that's being widely spread. Organizations like the World Economic Forum are doing a good job of creating environments with conversations about ideas like the Fourth Industrial Revolution. I have a major problem with that phrase because most companies today don't think they're industrial companies and so they tune it out. Sure. So I try to get people to say, I don't want you to talk about steam, electricity, IT, and AI. I want you to talk about scalability of power, distributability of power, adding of information to power, and adding of intelligent guidance to informed power. Those are what the four revolutions really right, are. Right. And the fifth revolution that builds on all of them is an engagement revolution for effectiveness of the teams that deliver results and co-creation by customers with companies to direct and promote those results. Well, gosh, Peter, I could continue just asking you questions uh, Indefinitely, but well, it's uh, a pleasure. I don't. It, I always tell people I don't know what I think until people do ask me. It's kind of a Schrodinger's cat thing. You don't <laughs> exactly. until you open the box. You don't know if the cat's alive or dead. Right. I literally only really figure out what I think when I have a chance to have this kind of a conversation. So for me, it's an investment in figuring out what I am thinking, and I appreciate the chance to do that with you. Well, it's been fascinating to have a front row seat for it. I appreciate uh, your time, your insight, and your dedication to what we're doing here. Um, in fact, that's why we're bringing this to a close, so you can go engage with some of our students and try Absolutely. to uh, bring some of that wisdom to I'm, them. I'm out here at this point two or three times a year in every visit uh, with the university, with partners here, with partners elsewhere in Montana, which, again, surprises many people. We have a thriving user group here in the area. Among the freedoms that people have today is to say, this is where I want to live. This is the kind of community of yeah. which I want to be part. Okay, now I'm going to go ahead and build a business because as long as I've got an airport and an internet connection, enough. I can be a participant in a global economy. That's a novel idea. But our own strategy at Salesforce now is to say we've got to stop reflexively hiring in major urban centers. Right. For example, uh, Burlington, Massachusetts, and Hyderabad, India are among our top four cities now where we've said, you know, there's a strategic opportunity for access to talent, access to customers, and a place where people would like to live. Um, Seattle, which is where I now am located, is on that list, although its housing costs are rising Certainly. rather quickly. 
the opportunity that people have now today to say, this is the life I want to have, and technology will allow me to connect with the rest of the world in the manner that I choose. And what degree I have now is really just a license to learn. We have many, many individual stories of people who've literally gone from being a meat slicer in a cold cuts factory or a hairdresser to a role as a Salesforce administrator or a bank technology vice president because the availability of the learning tools is like nothing ever seen before. And in a world where at any given time, half of what I'm discussing with customers didn't exist as subject matter three years ago. Sure. Well, what's 20 years experience in that world? Pretty irrelevant. Compared to I've been paying attention for the last three years and half of what I know, or rather maybe nine-tenths of what I know, is among the stuff that you don't know at all because you stopped paying attention three years ago because you thought you had your degree and you were done. So the decision to make yourself abreast of what's happening now and to equip yourself with the tools for anticipating what's almost certainly going to happen in shrinking frames of time is a choice that's open to anyone with energy and attention. Attention to get involved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the get involved part. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Coffey, thanks very much. Good to be with you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter as much as I did. My head is still spinning about that conversation, thinking about all the implications. Okay. Coming up next week, we shift gears a little bit. I speak to professor of physical therapy here at the University of Montana, Rich Willie. Rich is a great friend and prominent thinker and researcher on overuse injuries with runners in particular. I know there's a lot of endurance athletes, mountain athletes, uh, and beyond in this community, runners, etc. And uh, it's a time of year where we're switching gears from skiing, cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, to getting more mileage in on the trails and on the roads uh, on our feet with our running shoes. And um, if you're anything like me, you experience some aches and pains and maybe some injuries with uh, jumping into that too quickly. So I was excited to uh, get the chance to speak with Rich about how best to prepare for that and more broadly about his research and objectives and why he's chosen to do his work here at the University of Montana. Look forward to bringing that conversation next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you all know that they're big and they pretty much sell everything electrical you would ever need. But what you might not know is that they hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about job opportunities at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Comzar, Elizabeth Willie, Executive Producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton, and interns, Aspen Runkle, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.